This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Tony Black and joining me as ever is Duncan Barrett. How are you, Duncan? I am very well, Tony. I've just got back from a lovely week uh, on the beaches of Guernsey. or Well, not entirely on the beaches. I was there for the Literary Festival, so I was supposed to be working. I managed to uh, fit a bit of holiday time uh, in on either side, so I- I've had a pretty nice week. What about you? That's a much, much nicer sounding week than I've had. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no, no. No, not that I've had a bad week. I've just I've just been working. I work in a school, so it's, it's exam right, season, right. so it's... Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a it's a difficult time, but um, yeah, I I would. You've described Guernsey to me off air, and I've seen some of your pictures, and yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the wrong job. Well, there <laughs> you go. That. Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan <laughs> of Guernsey personally. I, basically, I was there last year for about three months doing some research for the book I'm writing at the moment, and it, it's difficult actually because uh, you know we came back at the end of the summer last year, sort of got back to England, got back to the you know rainy autumn weather, sat down to start writing this book, and I'm you know I'm sitting there typing away about this you know glorious island and how beautiful it is and how wonderful and i was just you know all those months i was thinking god i wish i was back there so good to get back there for at least a week anyway um and and take part in the festival as well which was fun well that's wonderful yeah it sounds uh, it sounds wonderful speaking of wonderful we're talking about uh, in this episode of primitive culture a uh, a technological innovation of the star trek universe because in this episode we are focusing on the holodeck and specifically we're bringing back the uh, the format that we had for our second episode which looked at uh, the mind's eye and the manchurian candidate in this episode we're looking at the 1970s film Westworld, which of course has since spawned a most uh, recent television series, which is, has done extremely well in the US and beyond, in comparison with the Next Generation episode, A Fistful of Datas from the sixth season. And we're going to use that as our jumping off point to talk much more about the holodeck in general and how it has been inspired by films such as Westworld going back um, into the uh, into the seventies before um, the next generation of Star Trek, which is when the holodeck came into being, and some of the interesting moral, ethical, and uh, political questions that the holodeck uh, arises. Because as we've been planning this episode, Duncan, we found that the holodeck is is quite 
fascinating and layered a, a creation, isn't it, in, in the Star Trek universe? It is, absolutely. And I think um, there's a sort of tendency to write off holodeck episodes, I suppose, because maybe the holodeck became a bit of a crutch uh, for a lot of the series. When I was looking up, I was trying to look up like a list of all the holodeck episodes to check I hadn't forgotten any when I was, you know, sort of thinking through about this episode. And, and the list that uh, someone on the Babel conference actually pointed me towards, it had them all and it said, uh, someone had made a note on it basically saying there's only one real holodeck episode in Deep Space Nine. And that gives you one idea of why that's the best, uh, obviously not including the original series. <laughs> that's why that's the best uh, Star Trek series. So there's this kind yeah. of assumption that a holodeck episode is going to be a kind of a bit of a lazy episode, a bit predictable, a bit sort of pointless somehow. But actually, I think the holodeck does sometimes raise a number of, ep- of interesting uh, issues. But also, these episodes can be kind of fun. They can be a bit of a romp. And um, I know A Fistful of Datas is a bit of a divisive episode, but I actually love it. For me, it's the kind of quintessential, cosy, sort of family-friendly TNG episode. It's the kind of thing that reminds me what I love about TNG. So um, I have a soft spot for that episode. It, it, it is one of... I hadn't watched it in many years, because it's been quite a lot of years since I've watched the next generation in in a great deal i I dip in and out occasionally and you know it it struck me how how relaxed the whole thing is i mean it spends the first like two or three minutes with the gag about picard trying to play his flute (laughs) and that's like that's like most of this quite long teaser before you even get into a hint of of story so it is a very very relaxed very you know not languid but just fun character piece with the american west with that location with a little bit of threat with what's going on with data but nothing major nothing that's you know going to be particularly in terms of stakes and it, but it's it's a nice it's a nice episode and it doesn't quite get into the 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 level of of depth to an extent and danger that some of the holodeck episodes across all of the three series actually do get into because they do occasionally go quite dark and this this is an example of where the tone on the whole is kept quite light and fluffy. It is definitely, and and also the comedy works. I think. I mean, I think there are you know it's genuinely quite a funny episode. I mean, you mentioned that scene at the beginning with Picard, which has you know nothing really, barely even to do with the plot. But there's you know quite a few decent gags in there. It's played nicely. It's it's slightly underplayed. You know the kind of comedy of moments like that. And I think it works quite well. And yeah, and even rewatching. It, I mean, there's a whole half of the episode which is not set on the holodeck, which is you know sort of data going about his business and and gradually you know coming out with these kind of wild west slang and and kind of incorporating <laughs> these aspects of this into into his behavior without even noticing and all, all those things are quite enjoyable and quite funny as well so i think i think it works pretty well it surprised me actually when you said it's sixth season i mean i suppose that makes sense but it, it surprised me that it doesn't come a bit earlier in a way because in some ways i think this is really the sort of quintessential uh stuck on the holodeck safety's off you you, you know what's how are you going to get out of that situation episode i mean they had the big goodbye uh you know really quite early on but but after that i don't think there was a huge amount of that that kind of trope that we think of as such a kind of mainstay of of next gen until um this episode and this is the one that really kind of sets that up in a big way uh which is you know is going to come back again and again in later star trek i think it's one of the holodeck episodes that really stands out when you think about the holodeck episodes i think the wild west data war thing 
sticks in your mind. It's, it certainly does mine. I mean, a bit. The, 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 my favourite holodeck episode, ironically, is the only one that DS9 did, which is Amman Bashir. I love that because it taps into my into all the things I love about James Bond and espionage and all those kind of things. So that's one that really sticks out memorably for me. And the killing game in, in Voyager, because I think that's a great two-part episode. But beyond that, I think it is a fistful of data. It is that kind of, even if though I hadn't seen it for years, that those images and that basic quintessential story of a problem on the holodeck, which then starts to affect the ship and affects characters. And like you say, they're unable to get out and they're unable to end the program. It's a very simple, fundamental idea, which then is kind of repeated in many respects, just in differing degrees. And it's got that kind of essential element of you know it's very much there it's leisure time it's you know there's a child involved alexander's there it's kind of this is just a fun day out that's going to go horribly wrong basically that kind of idea of your your game turning on you which you know which is there in the in westworld in the original film it's also there of course very much in uh, jurassic park and you, you know the film but also the novel the film hadn't come out until i think the following year from a fistful of datas but the novel had been out for a couple of years and was a massive bestseller and a massive hit and obviously westworld is sort of the more obvious inspiration for this because you know it's set in the wild west and also because i suppose the threat in this episode is very much from the fact that data that it's data that it's happened to and that data has sort of superhuman powers so it's kind of you know wharfs in this situation how's he going to go up against data because data has lightning fast reflexes and so on uh which obviously in a shootout is going to be a you know terrifying advantage so there's that element of the the link with the original film and the and the Yul Brynner character the gunslinger in that who also is this kind of unstoppable terminator like i was going to say i mean that's another film that of course is in the background of of all these things the idea of the sort of you know cold terrifying undefeatable robot enemy and it almost a kind of horror movie uh trope as well which i suppose you get towards the end of westworld where this robot just is sort of keeps coming for this guy and whatever he throws at him seems to keep going and keep going and keep going and you know this kind of uh, this this force that is is kind of pursuing him no matter where he runs to i think that that's actually something that that struck me when i watch westworld when, as in preparation for this just how much he reminds me of the terminator and how much james cameron was more than likely inspired by westworld as several other you know creatives had he must have been yeah let's backtrack then and, and talk a little bit about westworld because uh, you mentioned jurassic park earlier and there is of course the main tether there which is Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park and wrote Westworld in 1973. Now, Westworld was, wasn't was a book. Jurassic Park, of course, was the novel, which was then adapted by Steven Spielberg famously. And Jurassic Park is the much, much better known film. But Westworld has always had a quite a, a kitsch sci-fi place in a, you know, in a decade where science fiction before Star Wars wasn't a big thing. You know, 1973 Westworld came out. And of course, it's set in a in a a future world, although when you watch it now, it's very 70s, you know, it's in much of its design. But it is set in, in, in theory in a world a little bit ahead of ours where they've basically created an amusement park that is real. It's, it's a holodeck without the holograms. It's, it's a real-life holodeck, essentially, on Earth. And there are different parks. There is Westworld, there is Roman World, and there is Medieval World. And there are three different amusement parks that you can go and play these characters and you can be a, a gunslinger in the wild west you can be a roman you know emperor you can be a a, a a liege knight fighting you know in the uh in the medieval world and have a castle and and all this kind of thing and you can actually exist in that world and all the other people around you are machines who have been programmed by a a lab who are monitoring the whole park who will then 
play the role around you and they will be the villain or they will be the the love interest or they will be the you know the 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 sheriff or whatever and you can then engage in your fantasy whatever it is within that story of course the problem happens in westworld is that the machines start to become self-aware and then turn on the the real humans and it is a fascinating idea which uh, which Crichton puts across. I mean, actually, I think the film Westworld is, I believe, the possibly the first ever uh, instance of a computer virus being mentioned on film, which is basically what causes all the malfunctions and the strange behaviour and so on. Is there's they describe it as being like the mechanical equivalent of a of a human disease, and I think that was quite a sort of novel concept at the time. Obviously, to us, it's a bit more familiar. I mean, it's interesting. There's there's not really beyond that explanation they don't go into very much detail as to kind of why it's happening certainly compared to well a fistful of data there's quite a good explanation it's you know Geordie and data have been have been conducting this experiment with basically wiring him into the ship's computer with the modern uh, remake of westworld there's a lot more explanation as to you know who's been who's been behind these changes it's the programmers who've been who've been up to various things behind the scenes there's elements of industrial espionage going on and kind of sabotage and so on as well and in Jurassic Park, there's this whole, particularly in the novel, uh, some of this sort of comes across in the film, but particularly in the novel, there's this kind of theme of basically the the hubris of the human characters thinking that they can control this system. Um, and in both Jurassic Park and Westworld, uh, you, you know, you mentioned these these teams of people uh, sort of backstage, as it were, you, you know, watching all these TV screens and kind of trying to control everything. And of course, in Jurassic Park, although the park isn't open at the time of the story, you know, we, we see a lot of the people behind the scenes who are working on getting everything going and working on, on thinking they can control it. And do they know where the dinosaurs are? Do they know how many any dinosaurs there are and this whole sort of theme of basically the futility of believing that they can control this system uh you have the the ian malcolm character jeff goldblum in the film who's basically saying from the beginning you know this is going to be a disaster this is going to go wrong because uh he's a chaos theoretician and according to his understanding of chaos theory it's this is basically creating a system that cannot be controlled by human beings and is going to come back and and get them and in a weird way i think we we almost see something similar in Star Trek because particularly I'm thinking of those those kind of early holodeck episodes, not so much a fistful of datas, but, um, you know, going back to the big goodbye, going back to uh, 11001001, the, the binar episode, going back to elementary dear data. There's this kind of sense of wonder from the cast, uh, from, you know, from the crew of the Enterprise. They've never seen this before. It's brand new technology. Obviously, we know it was in the animated series, so that, that's a, a bit of a, a puzzle there. But <laughs> as far as they're concerned, this is brand new technology. It's been souped up in the binar episode it's been kind of improved and, and it's the new version of it but they really treat it in a in a surprisingly sort of um amateur way you know they, they don't appear to really understand very much about it it's only kind of later that we get the sense that you know someone like geordie or or, or in voyager you know someone like harry kim could kind of um have the operating manual for the holodeck and know exactly what to do with it. In those early episodes, there's very much that element of kind of, this is, you know, unbelievable. This is marvellous. This These creations are, are almost defy our understanding of of science and, and how it can work. And I suppose that's very much a theme of, of sort of all these stories is, is how much, once the system is so elaborate and so complicated, how much can the human beings feel that they can control it? When, you know, you step onto the holodeck, uh, if the computer's not cooperating 
you don't you literally don't know where the exit is you know you don't know how to get out of that room you're you're completely trapped there in a sense yeah and and one thing that i think is evident in voyager now voyager has the most holodeck episodes of all of them voyager has 11 holodeck episodes whereas the next generation only has seven it seems like the next generation would have more than seven but it doesn't and one thing i think that is clear by the time we get to voyager is that the characters of Voyager and Voyager itself as a show is more interested in trying to understand what lies behind the holodeck, trying to relate to these kind of holodeck creations, trying to make them more human. And obviously, you know, you see that majorly with the, the, the Doctor. But it's not just through him. You know, it's the relationships that they have with these these holographic programs, whether it's Tom Paris with Captain Proton or whether it's Janeway with Da Vinci, you know, or the, the uh, Fairhaven, you know, uh, Irish village. And they start to fall in love with holograms. And, you know, all these all these things happen that in the next generation, that didn't really happen. The next generation, in things like A Fistful of Data, it was a malfunction or it was Moriarty who was starting to become self-aware. You know, Moriarty is to an extent the first example of a, of a self-aware hologram, which you later see with things like Vic Fontaine in, a, in Deep Space Nine. But it's the genesis of that idea that then is carried through with Voyager in a much more, in a much more way of, of humans trying to understand the magic behind the holodeck, in a sense, and what, how the holodeck can evolve into something else. And it's something that you see in the, in the Westworld remake that, that came out last year. And it's it, it, almost in reverse, in that these machines are trying to understand humanity more so and it's it's a fascinating idea where where does the line blur and that that's what's interesting about westworld as a concept and how it's i think it's a formulating idea for what the holodeck became in where is the line between reality and fiction and existence and you know in non-existence because the in, in theory holograms are just light you know force fields of light reflecting you know programmed ideas but Star Trek is very concerned about taking that and trying to think about how it evolves to the next level. But also, once you get into the kind of reality of it, you get into these moral questions, which I suppose is what you see in Voyager is increasingly, because there's this whole kind of running theme, in a way, throughout the latter years of Voyager, about holographic rights and the sort of persecution of holograms, and we see the Doctor kind of standing up for other holograms. It sort of raises all these questions about the ethics of the holodeck. I mean, in Next Gen, I suppose we had Moriarty, who was seen as a very much a special case and an accident an accidental case you, you know that they they took very seriously the fact that they created this life form in a sense inadvertently uh and they weren't really sure what to do about him you know they kept uh, basically sending him away and putting him in that that little box thing basically where he could uh, you know hopefully uh, uh carry on without sort of disturbing anyone and i suppose with those episodes it's very much this there's this kind of existential threat really and this kind of question what is moriarty is he is he a real person or you, you know or is, is he just a hologram? Whatever that means, and and even with the Doctor in Voyager, you saw that. I mean, I once read an interview with um, with Jerry Taylor and Brannon Braga, and the the writer for I think this was Star Trek magazine back in the nineties asked them both the same question: Is the Doctor alive? And they both gave completely different answers. Basically, uh, Jerry Taylor said, "Yeah, of course he's alive," and Brannon Braga said, "No, don't be ridiculous. He's not alive." So, so you know, even within the the writers, these kind of metaphysical questions could sort of go unresolved but i suppose alongside them there are these kind of moral questions and actually 
although these don't really get picked up in next gen i think they do get picked up later in voyager and in fact they're right there back in uh in the original westworld even in the the very first couple of minutes of that film is this sort of uh basically this kind of advert which apparently was shot after the rest of the film was completed as kind of bit of additional filming Um, and it's basically these these people coming out of the park and enthusing about what a wonderful time they've had and there's this guy who comes out and he says i just shot six people and then he sort of backtracks a bit and says well you, you know not not people not they're not real people you know they were robots or whatever but it's that kind of even in that moment it sort of raises this question of is there something slightly questionable about this you know and and the the new version of westworld the the, re, the recent remake absolutely uh, is is very centrally concerned with this with the kind of moral question of what it means to to take your entertainment i mean it's a sort of shoot 'em up culture to take your entertainment in a place where basically the enjoyment is you know you can rape you can murder you can basically do anything you like and they keep saying to people you know this park is uh it's not just about entertainment. It's not just about fun. It's about finding yourself. It's about finding who you really are. Uh, if, you know, modern culture and modern social uh, convention and so on is stripped away and you can do whatever you like, that really you're going to find yourself. And and one of the most uh, shocking aspects of the storyline in that series, this is a massive spoiler, by the way, so stop listening for anyone who, who hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> and it is absolutely worth watching. Uh, and completely, a, a lot of people said they saw this coming, but it completely took me by surprise and really floored me is that the the character who we see all the way through that story who who is this kind of quite sweet uh quite trusting naive um basically the nice guy the guy who doesn't want to to get into the the violence and the sexual violence and so on that we discover that actually all the scenes that we've been seeing with him which are quite similar to the original movie they have a similar dynamic of him and his and his uh less pleasant friend basically goading him on have actually taken place in the distant past and he's the same man who is essentially being presented as the villain, the Ed Harris character, who is completely amoral, who in the first episode uh, rapes the central character, who is killing people, who is kind of brutalising people. And that basically that's, that's who this, you know, that he has discovered himself he's discovered this kind of dark side of himself and and that's who he's become and i suppose the original westworld it sort of only hints at that in a way but it but it is there and it is kind of underlying all of these stories in a sense is you know is this kind of moral question and this sort of uh, moral bleakness, really, about these fantasy worlds. Well, it's it's the extension, isn't it, of what we have now? You know, and the holodeck is then the extension beyond that, which is nowadays in you know in the UK, in the US, in in many countries in the world, we have theme parks. You know, we have or we increasingly have virtual reality technology where we can go into a you know a gaming world and we have computer games and things like that where you can you know you can get out of you know you can go and going into grand theft auto and you can you know spend an entire day murdering people on the street consequence free but you can go to a theme park in the real world and you can get a thrill you know you can go on a roller coaster or you can experience something that will make you sick or make you elated or whatever this is the extension beyond that where if there are no rules because you've paid a fee and you've gone into this world that has no consequences because you're not dealing with human beings then is that okay? You know, is it okay to go and rape a machine as a as a cowboy? You know, or is it okay to go and slaughter thousands of machines as a you know a medieval knight and enjoy it and get the thrill? And you know, the Westworld TV series, even like you say, it is there in the original movie, but the original movie is more of a kind of a pulpy seventies you know science fiction thriller in many respects. 
Whereas the, the TV show is a very complicated, layered, subtle, mysterious drama. And at the heart of that entire story, which you've just described very well, is this idea of, am I a good guy or a bad guy, essentially? Who am I inside? If, if, I, if I can do this, what does that say about me as a person? If I enjoy it, if I get a thrill out of killing someone, if I get a, a thrill out of raping a woman... It, does that mean I'm bad? Does that mean I'm a bad person? Does it? But does it matter in the context of machines? And you know, the same moral questions come up in the holodeck. They don't come up in a fistful of datas, which is more of a fun romp, but they do come up in the general concept of what the holodeck is. One of the interesting, uh, slight links, though, between between a lot of these stories is the idea of prostitution. And weirdly, prostitution does come up in a fistful of datas, uh, and it's it's sort of it's not just there in the background. It's kind of remarked upon because there's this joke about the fact that um, when Worf and Alexander first uh, enter the program, there's this uh, this woman basically uh, flashing her legs at them in a kind of suggestive way, and and Alexander says, "Oh yes, uh, Barclay helped me with the program." Now, obviously we know that Barclay uh, has has got in trouble before for presenting his female colleagues in this kind of sexual light in the holodeck for having these kind of hollow fantasies that are not really acceptable and it certainly seems like Barclay has has sort of sexed up the program in a sense and I guess we we do get I mean you know TNG is a sort of family friendly show they they don't really go there very directly but there's there's also that episode um the one the perfect mate where I think it is where where Riker is um struggling to control himself with this you know very beautiful and alluring woman and then he says at the end oh if anyone needs me I'll be in the holodeck so there's definitely this kind of that the holodeck is where people go to, you know, get a kind of sexual release aside from anything else. And I suppose, you know, the implication is that, uh, I mean, you know, they're not going there to, to rape people like they are in the, in the modern Westworld, obviously. But at the same time, they're using these holographic characters. And I guess if you start to think in terms of the kind of later, like Voyager episodes and so on, and, and the idea that holograms can have sentience, can have a kind of experience a real life, then it, it sort of raises interesting questions. And, and the prostitute is a kind of key figure in a way. I'm thinking of, I don't know if you've seen the TV series Humans as well, which is about similarly about robots in kind of ordinary modern sort of broadly speaking contemporary society who start to kind of become more self-aware uh, and one of the main characters in that is actually a, basically a sex robot like a prostitute and she um, in the end kills a client um, and and sort of escapes but there's I suppose there's this kind of connection between you know if, if someone's in a in a job like that where they're totally um, servicing the wishes of another person I mean I don't want to get into a whole debate about the ethics of prostitution necessarily but arguably there's there is a sort of connection there with the robot who is, you know, who's designed uh, for the, the user in a sense and is supposed not to have their own subjectivity and their own identity and their own wishes and desires and so on. And in the modern Westworld remake, we see a lot more concern with you know, the fact that these robots are sort of waking up in a sense, they're becoming real people. And the horror of that, because really what they're being put through, if you if you see them as real people, and what that program does so brilliantly is it, it takes a lot of the elements of the original story, but it flips them on its head by showing them from the robot perspective rather than the human perspective. So, you know, so the villain, really, the villain dressed in black in the original Westworld is Yul Brynner, is this robot, this kind of Terminator-like character, totally inhuman, totally a machine, uh, that's the worst possible thing. In the modern version, uh, the Ed Harris character, who's this kind of awful, amoral, uh, nasty character, 
is basically, you know, he's dressed almost identically. He's the villain in black. He's the gunslinger. He's he's the kind of deadly monster in a sense of the story. And we see it much more from the perspective of these robots who are starting to remember things, who are starting to experience the kind of trauma of what they're being put through. And there's this kind of sense, really, that, you know, from their perspective, it's like some kind of idea of hell. It's like a sort of, you, you know, a, a, an ancient or a medieval concept of hell where you're being sort of tortured the whole time and, and brutalised. And, you, you know, it's it's really very dark and horrific experience for them once they, you know, have that kind of subjectivity and can can kind of understand on any level what's happening to them. And there are, there are some scenes in the, in the new Westworld, more so than the old one, that have... You know, it's shots where the, and it's mainly through Tandy Newton's character, uh, who becomes very self-aware, and you see a lot through her eyes. And she sees, you know, litters of bodies just being carved up by scientists, by humans, treated like pieces of meat. And she's obviously, obviously seen that through a, a more of a self-aware viewpoint, you know, and it's like a slaughterhouse, you know, it, it's horrendous. It's the kind of thing you'd see in a, you know, in a Nazi war camp or whatever. It's just, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying thing. And the holodeck is very much kind of a, a, an extension beyond the idea of a literal theme park that becomes a place that you can let out human desires and the darker side of human nature that we all keep it, we all keep in because the, because laws prevent us from being I'm not saying everyone would go out and murder and rape, but I'm saying that within most humans, there are there are darker impulses that you keep at bay, you know, and you learn through civilizations, through learning to live as a human being, that you do keep at bay. And in a world where you don't have to, then where does it where does it stop? And with the holodeck, you know, you you touched on it earlier with uh, Reg Barkley. The big thing, and you you, you see this in uh, Deep Space Nine when Quark sometimes is talking about holodeck programs, you know, and he's quite lascivious about it. He often has a little background back on, uh, under the door trade about holodeck programs that might be a little bit illegal. And you know, one of the things that you, you do get occasionally is this suggestion that people create holodeck programs of real life women or men with the intention of going and having sex with them, you know, when, when the, there is kind of this sort of law in terms of holodeck programming, certainly within Starfleet, I think that you don't create holodeck programs based on real people, that people, you know, you create, you create holograms, you know, even if, if you do want to have a, you know, Vulcan love slave program or something of an equivalent, then it's got to be, it can't be, you know, it can't be T'Pol, <laughs> you know, or do you know what I mean? Or that kind of person. I know T'Pol wasn't around at this point, but that, that's the whole thing. She was a historical mar- figure. So you could be, you know, well, you yeah, know, well, yeah. historical <laughs> interest. She's like the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, Captain Janeway's, uh, you know, 19th century uh, <laughs> yeah. romantic yeah, exactly. character. Exactly. I guess you could yeah. say that really from the 24th yeah. century vampire. But it, it is that idea, that moral idea. There, There is surely something a little bit wrong about about having the power and the ability to create that through, you know, light and photons and things like that. And if if there is a reality to the holographic world, you know, as you see through the Doctor, through Vic Fontaine, if, if these people start to become self-aware, like the machines start to become self-aware in Westworld, at what point does it become more than just a game? At what point does it become more than just entertainment? Because also it it sort of depends on the context, doesn't it? I mean, for Vic Fontaine to be self-aware, well, Vic Fontaine's leading a pretty, you know, happy life in a sense. And no no one goes into Vic's casino to go and start a fight with him or or make his life miserable. They go there to to enjoy the show. And, you you know, it's it's quite a a pleasant experience for him in a sense. And he, he doesn't seem to have too much of, you know, the doctor in Voyager is always trying to sort of expand and do more and go further 
further and so on. And we see that a little bit with Vic in uh, It's Only a Paper Moon. But at the same time, he's he's reasonably content to to be the entertainer, to be that person. You, you know, that's sort of what he wants to be. But, you know, if you were to ask the Vulcan love slave, if, if you know, if the Vulcan love slave was, was self-aware, that would be quite a, a different issue. I mean, I actually, I, I've always had a slight problem with description of programs like that because i think there is this kind of idea of comedy around it and, and it's the same with you know the uh orion slave girl with that kind of whole routine where, where really what we're talking about is sex slavery you, you know which is is not really a funny subject but at the same time it's it's presented in this kind of nudge nudge wink wink kind of cheeky way i mean it's the same thing you know you get it with star wars as well the kind of slave layer thing there's this kind of titillation around the idea of of, of having a sex slave which is pretty unpleasant when you think about it but interestingly you know ties very much into that idea of well you know if you can get away with it i mean in, in the cage we see the captain seemingly contemplating going and becoming a an orion slave trader you know it's this kind of idea of well well if you can get away with it you know what are what are your real moral boundaries um that you know that comes up very much in the in the modern west world and and quark's hollow suites uh which don't appear to be constrained by the kind of usual rules about what is and isn't acceptable you know certainly in that direction i mean there's that episode where the the guy um the jeffrey combs character uh wants to create a kind of kira sex program basically and is trying to kind of steal her identity in a sense and it's you know a bit it's ahead of its time in a sense the idea of sort of uh identity theft and also like stealing people's private images which obviously is something that you know that comes up these days but in a sense that's exactly what's happening in that program yeah it is and it's funny you know when you look at it from that perspective when these these were being made in the 90s those issues didn't exist in the real world you know you didn't have that idea of digital online threat we were it was before that that age so it's interesting how you can use that as a as an analogy. What about the um, the idea of of the holodeck being a self aware force that that the computer becomes corrupted by? In the sense of in a fistful of data, they can't shut this down. You know, when when they try and say computer end program, it won't work. And then they become Worf and Alexander and Troy become trapped within this world of increasing you know enemy datas <laughs> and the uh the, the the landowner guy who comes to get his, his son out of jail and allowing brent spiner to play all these different western cliche roles but having fun doing it at the same time but at what point and you see this in a lot of the holodeck episodes at what point does the holodeck become dangerous at uh, literally as a uh, as, a, as a, a piece of entertainment gone wrong in the, in the same sense that happens in westworld with the you know the machines revolting, and in Jurassic Park with the dinosaurs getting loose. You know it's that same idea, and obviously, you know you have the option to turn the holodeck safeties off in a controlled program. So there are certain elements with the holodeck, aren't there, that aren't as just as straightforward as turn up, be entertained, leave. The interactivity can create its own sense of problems. And I suppose, I mean, you know, you mentioned theme parks earlier. Obviously, there is an element of danger in in theme parks in the real world. You know, people, I mean. They're, child died only a week ago i think in a theme park accident here you know there is an element of danger in theme parks although the danger is supposed to be managed and we have to you know you sort of you go into them on on trust that the system has been set up properly that it's being maintained properly you know in the same way as i don't know if you fly in an airplane or something you trust you trust that there are people maintaining it and making sure that everything is is as safe as it can be but i mean one of the themes that actually comes across in in all of these uh stories in a sense is this idea that 
there, there are these safety protocols. I mean, in the original Westworld, they say they, they, they use real guns. I mean, this is astonishing, really, on the face of it. They use real guns, but the safety protocol is that the gun can't be fired at a warm target because it has a sensor in it, and the, the gun should only be possible to be used against a robotic target, basically. So if you try to shoot your friend with the gun, even though there are real bullets loaded in the gun, it, it won't fire. Uh, now, obviously, because of this computer virus or whatever, it all goes wrong and it doesn't work. If you look at Jurassic Park, you, you know, particularly in the novel of Jurassic Park, there's all this discussion, and it's in the film as well, but at slightly less length, about convincing the the visitors that the park is safe. I mean, that's basically what the plot of Jurassic Park is supposedly about. That's why they're there, is to see the park, to see what's been achieved, and to kind of sign it off as that it's possible that it can be open to the public. And there are these grave concerns from the very beginning. You know, I mentioned Dr. Malcolm has produced this report basically saying it's impossible to make this park safe. You know, the very nature of the kind of chaotic universe will create danger in in what you're doing and there are so many different safety protocols that they've built into their structure there you know this idea that the 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 dinosaurs can't breed because they're all female but they made a mistake because they used the amphibian dna and the amphibians can actually change sex if necessary these ideas to do with the way the computer system is set up ideas to do with the way that the power system is set up so many different levels basically in that in that story revolve around a system that was thought to be foolproof that they thought they'd worked it all out and they they missed something they they didn't think in a certain way they didn't you know realize uh, that one unexpected event could lead to another and lead to another and lead to another and the whole thing basically falls apart around them and obviously in star trek you know they have these safety protocols but of course it's a bit of a running joke because the only time we ever hear about the safety protocols is when they're not working and when they're not working you know your your <laughs> seemingly benign uh, ends entertainment becomes completely lethal you know um in a way that is is slightly hard to credit that anyone would take these risks i mean it's you you do sort of wonder after a while you know are are you mad to go in the holodeck because you know we've seen it go wrong so many times and we've seen that people can actually be killed there and in the same way i suppose there's this kind of question you you know would you would you go to jurassic park i mean would do you go to a theme park and ride on the the roller coaster knowing that there is a small chance that it might kill you uh you know would you go to a park full of dinosaurs or is that actually a slightly foolish and reckless thing to do i mean for example i went diving in a cage with a great white shark when i was quite a few years younger i know i don't know that i would do that now uh partly because i've seen more videos of of things where that's gone slightly wrong and the sharks got into the cage or whatever but that's very much that sort of experience Uh, you, you know tying into the jurassic park theme of here's this magnificent terrifying animal and you're sort of you you know you're notionally protected from it you're you're hidden away from it behind these metal bars but actually you you know part of the excitement of it probably is the fact that there's an element of danger you know you're not just going to watch it from the boat through a camera or something you're going to get right up there close to it and sort of you know you're you are almost sort of pushing your luck a bit and with a lot of these things and certainly with theme parks and roller coasters and so on that sense of danger that thrill that kind of tension between feeling safe and feeling at risk is you know is a part of the appeal of it i think i think that's exactly it i think it's the human nature thing in that we are we are bred to to enjoy the fear you know to to an, to an extent you know it's why people watch horror horror movies you know they they love the idea loads of people love the idea of being scared but they love the idea of being scared without with knowing that they they are not in danger there is that level of even subconsciously, it's only a film. It's only a, a, a you know a, a ride. It's only a game. It can't hurt me. And that's when people become terrified. Like with the tragic case of 
the, the girl who drowned at, at the theme park in the UK, there will be an enormous amount of people now who will who like. And there was a major accident in another theme park a couple of years ago where a couple of people lost their legs, I think, and there were things like that trapped in a roller coaster. For there's a massive backlash in terms of the amount of people who would go, "I'm not going there. I wouldn't go and do that," because they the, the reality of it has has become that the fear hasn't hasn't it, it's exceeded safe levels. You know, it's be, it's actually become a real danger, a real threat, and. If those these cases are seldom, but the reality is, you know, if you went to a park full of dinosaurs, that quite honestly, at some point, someone's going to get eaten. That's that's <laughs> that's the reality yeah. of it. <laughs> like in the holodeck, if you have these these starships that are traveling the galaxy with a holodeck on, where it's at the mercy of a computer that, for whatever reason, can go wrong or can be infected or whatever, at some point, your entertainment system is going to go wrong. At some point, something's going to happen. What, like you said, though, what they don't seem to realise is just how often and badly this can happen. I mean, <laughs> the sheer amount of holodeck episodes where things go wrong, you know, we have nearly 20. It shouldn't go wrong that often, no. <laughs> especially not on one <laughs> ship. And that's the thing. Is it an acceptable risk? Is it worth? Is it a risk worth taking? And, and all of these stories, Westworld, all of the holodeck stories, Fistful of Datas, they explore the idea of, is it worth the level of entertainment, the immersion, the false reality that you end up going to try and get. I guess the other thing that obviously is sort of absent from the Star Trek versions, but is, is present in all these other versions of these kind of stories, is the influence of money on those considerations. I mean, certainly the remake of Westworld and, and the novel of Jurassic Park, and to some extent I think this is there in the original Westworld, uh, there's this idea of kind of corporate responsibility and corporate greed and, you you know, what what is considered an acceptable risk to put people to and um i i saw an interview actually with michael Crichton. he was saying that for him the the key scene in the original westworld film was actually there's a scene around a, a sort of boardroom scene uh where they're kind of making a decision basically a few things have started to get go wrong i think maybe by this point the guy's been bitten by a snake which is not you know a robotic snake which is not supposed to happen there have been some kind of minor uh glitches basically but you know no one's been killed basically no one's been very seriously injured and they're contemplating should we shut down the park should we give it a month's cooling off time should we find out what the problems are and they decide in the end you know to kind of keep it running for the time being and very much these are the same conversations that are taking place uh in jurassic park there's this whole kind of corporate espionage element going on you know you've got the nedry character who's trying to steal embryos and sell them to another company who are going to set up a rival park somewhere else there's this kind of pressure to please the investors and to open the park on schedule and you know all these different people with their different agendas and really you know although safety is obviously it's not that no one's thought about safety i mean they've got safety protocols all all over the shop it's just that that there are kind of gaps in it but at the same time there's always this kind of awareness that money is playing a part and that kind of there's this desire to to sell this product and this entertainment and apparently, actually, for Michael Crichton, because he originally, when he started off writing Jurassic Park, he actually wrote it as a screenplay, apparently, initially. But it was quite a different story. And it was about a graduate student who created a dinosaur. And then he, he said he had this sort of realisation that to make it feel believable and real, it would have to be a commercial story, really. And, and that the dinosaurs could not be really being created for the sake of 
uh, scientific progress or scientific curiosity or whatever, but it had to be about entertainment because it was only entertainment that could generate the kind of money that would, you know, fund something on that scale because the the costs obviously are astronomical of what they've done there. And obviously, Star Trek is you know is living in a post capitalist society. They don't they don't really have financial constraints. They don't really have any of that stuff. So it's purely a matter of computer programming. It's it's kind of costless in a sense, and and that's one of the wonders of the holodeck, I suppose, is that the it appears to require no resources other than a bit of you know obviously on voyager they have holodeck rations because they're they're short of energy or whatever but you know broadly speaking it's it's totally limitless and and unrationed and 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 free within the federation i think i mean if you look at the ferengi yes not a quark Quark, obviously yeah yeah we're going going beyond that yeah it is a monetized thing though i mean that because obviously the ferengi is the capitalist allegory you know within star trek and they do monetize the holosuites you know and they do make money out of it and it is like we've talked about earlier it is that idea of this underground trade of dodgy holosuite programs and things that you know are, are very much you know not within the the law as such if there is such a thing as a holodeck hologram law which i don't think there really is i mean within the federation there are rules no i don't think there is about how you govern how you do this as a, as a starfleet officer but beyond that it seems like it's thunderdome you know nobody cares you know you can do what you want with the holodeck as long as you you can pay or as long as no one's watching and that's that's quite a dangerous quite a dangerous idea in, in itself you know and then it also can lead to things like uh, episodes like in the pale moonlight which obviously uses the holodeck in a in a very very dangerous way in terms of manipulating the entire galactic landscape with the faked holodeck program of a you know a meeting between the Romulans and the and the Dominion which is probably Cisco's darkest hour really you know in many respects i mean that's a phenomenal episode which gets into the the morality of of much more than the holodeck but the holodeck is a key thing that Garrett uses in order to manipulate this situation so it can be used for be far darker you know, things than than simple morality or, you know, just entertainment in the long run. Absolutely, yes. No, that's, that's, certainly that's true. And I suppose it's, you know, in Next Gen, it's very much, it's about entertainment and it's about, uh, you, you know, it's about leisure activities and so on. And it, it has a sort of innocence to it. it it's true, you're, you're right. I suppose the, the holodeck, people do pay to use it, say at Quarks and so on. But at the same time, it is affordable. Um, you know, anyone can reasonably pay to to book a holo suite is the sense it's not exorbitantly expensive whereas the thing we see in westworld both the original and the and the remake as well but you know in the remake in the uh, in the original at the very beginning they they basically quote the figure they say it costs a thousand dollars a day to go there now i don't know what a thousand dollars in 1973 you, you know is worth now but it's a lot mm. basically mm. you've got to be very wealthy to partake in this activity and certainly in the remake of westworld it's seen as this you know it's very much an entertainment for rich corporate types I, I mean i suppose a bit like we see today with you know trophy hunting basically is a kind of you know something that that the the very wealthy go and do and exactly you know play out these kind of violent fantasies in a sense that that most people are slightly horrified by um and that they can do you know if they if they've got however i don't know what it costs but you know whatever it costs to kill a giraffe they can kill a giraffe and you know to to most people there's something deeply unpleasant about that but but that's the that's the kind of reality of it, and I don't know with Jurassic Park. It's not really. I don't know if it's it's if it's as 
clear as that. But at the same time, I think there is a an awareness that it's not going to be, you, you know, it's not going to be on the level of Alton Towers. It's not going to be sort of affordable yeah. for anyone on a weekend, is it? It's going to, you know, you're going to have to fly to, um, you know, wherever it is, Costa Rica to to start with to get anywhere near that. So it's very, this is very much like high end luxury uh, holiday experience for the really the super wealthy and their families. Which is why, oddly enough, the the reality of a holodeck. I don't know. In the real world, we are a light years away from that in 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 the Star Trek paradigm. But in theory, given we're heading towards virtual reality, given we're heading towards, you know, augmented reality in terms of video gaming and things like that, what we're seeing increasingly these days, that in itself is much harder to be, make an elitist money-making thing. You know, most, most anyone can go out there now and buy a, a PlayStation VR for 300 quid. It's not something that you need to pay tens of thousands of pounds to have and yes okay it's not the level of immersion that a Westworld would be or a Jurassic Park would be but it's it's more akin to a holodeck scenario where you are in a fictional world and you are manipulating the world around you and you can see a fictional world around you that's very different from a literal real world where you go to a theme park or you go to a a whatever and and you're there as a person so it almost seems like the holodeck wouldn't cost as much if you see what I'm getting at you know, as 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 something to to be used, and and that's that is reflected in the Star Trek universe. But it is, you are right when you say it is more innocent in the next generation. You know, a fistful of data is a really nice leisurely stroll through the holodeck, and it's it's often about a glitch. It is often that that idea of the glitch, something going wrong, or or you know, the most interesting one they probably do is Hollow Pursuits with Reg Barkley because it is a little bit more about the psychology of the holodeck. But as things and Voyager does similar, you know, in many ways. It does do the the idea of the glitches and things like that. But then the darker aspects start to come in. The deeper moral questions, as we've talked about, start to come in. And you start to realise, I think, that it's it's not necessarily something that it was a good idea. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you th- would, would, would Archer have, have approved of this? I don't think he would have done, to be honest. I mean, I suppose it's also one of the things we see in these darker episodes, I suppose it, it's not a glitch. It's, uh, it's a choice. I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually, Fistful of Data's, it's not so much a random. It's not with Westworld. You get the sense it's a random glitch, and it's uh, and and even with Jurassic Park, I suppose there's this sense it, it's chaos at work. You know, something's going to go. So it's sort of almost like you know, if if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Basically, you could almost summarise it as. Actually, in a fistful of data, it's Geordie and Data again. It's it's Geordie's fault. You know, it was Geordie who uh, who basically <laughs> gave life to Moriarty. Now it's Geordie who has this idea of hooking data up to the computer and doesn't realise that this is a terrible idea and is. is going to cause all this trouble uh and unfortunately you know most of the trouble is fairly minor and comedic and, and silly you know it messes up with the play scripts and the, the music playback and you know it's it, it, he says it's the library systems that it affects so in other words no kind of vital systems it's not affecting life support or anything like that but at the same time because the holodeck has this capacity to become this kind of deadly killing machine uh, it actually uh, you know a glitch in the library systems is is potentially quite dangerous, but it is at least unintentional. It's a mistake that they've made, you know, a little bit in the way of with Jurassic Park, for example, there's this very strong theme of hubris of humans thinking that they know what they're doing and actually all these errors creeping in because they haven't factored in, they haven't accounted for this or they haven't accounted for that or they, you know, they didn't realise that that they were taking a shortcut that's going to lead to trouble. But actually what we see in a lot of those later episodes, particularly those Voyager episodes, 
is the holodeck is being used, in a sense, as a weapon in itself. I mean, in worst case scenario, we see Seska basically deliberately turning the holodeck into a death trap so that she can, you know, can hurt people. In extreme risk, we see Belana basically doing the same thing to herself, you know, but uh, using the holodeck to to injure herself, to threaten her own life. I suppose, you know, very much like we're saying about the, the theme park rides, almost like, you know, going to a theme park and, you know, not wearing the seatbelt or whatever, you know, deliberately making it as dangerous as possible. Uh, in the killing game, we see the Hirogen again, turning the safeties off in order to use the holodeck for entertainment, for, for hunting, for sport, all these themes that sort of come out, you know, particularly in the later Westworld, but are, are kind of there in the background in the, in the early Westworld. And then obviously that gets kind of turned on its head later on in the the, uh, two-part episode Flesh and Blood, where you've got these kind of holograms who are becoming more self-aware and so on. And and they are really experiencing very much that kind of hell that we were talking about in the in the new Westworld series of you know of, of being hunted of being used as kind of as as victims of violence in a sense that's what they're what they're being used as and the kind of brutality and the cruelty of that but again it's a kind of you, you know something might go wrong so so in that case the Herogen make a mistake and don't bank on the holograms kind of getting back at them but at the same time their original intention is not innocent it's not just entertainment it's not just a leisure activity they were actually intending to do something kind of morally questionable with the holodeck and in fact Janeway had in effect colluded with that because she was the one who gave them the technology this was one of those stories where Janeway made a decision in one episode and then a few years later it kind of came back to bite her in a sense she played out that kind of hubristic storyline the kind of Jurassic Park storyline or whatever you know thinking she could give technology to another species in a safe way I mean, it's kind of a prime directive issue almost, isn't it? It's like, you know, what happens if you, you, you think you can predict what's going to happen and you can't. And, and really the whole concept of the prime directive is, is very much similar in a sense to what Dr. Malcolm is saying in Jurassic Park is this idea that, you know, even if you have the best intentions, even if you think you're doing everything for the right reasons, you know, you'll be surprised by what happens. Strange things happen and, and you, you know, you may end up causing a, a real disaster basically and and in a sense that's what you know arguably what Janeway has done in that situation by giving them this technology that they then use in a certain way that creates this you know real crisis and and the continuation of this is explored really nicely actually in certain of the continuation novels uh um the the voyager continuation novels homecoming and um the father shore uh, and it, and it goes a little bit beyond. I know it goes beyond that, but they get into the idea of of the the doctors. But by, by the end of season seven of Voyager, where the doctor is starting to you know come come to the conclusion about holographic rights and things like that, it's explored to the point where you've got extremist holograms now creating effectively like terrorist groups fighting back with with kind of mobile emitters and things like that against human targets to because they want to extend their rights as individuals as real people and it goes back to this it goes back to this fundamental star trek idea which is there right from 1966 onwards and is played out through multiple different characters in pretty much every almost every show the idea of 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 someone endeavoring to become more human or to understand their place in the world whether it's the, explored whether it's through Spark and the idea of his half Vulcan, you know, heritage and trying to understand humanity. Then Data, obviously, with his mach- trying to become more than a machine. Odo trying to figure out, you know, where he's from. Take on those human characteristics. Seven of Nine coming out of the Borg and trying to understand what it's like to be a functioning human being again. And then the Doctor, you know, the Doctor as being this, 
you know, this holographic creation who starts to become more human and starts to actually, even though he's just light and photons, he's more than that. And it's that fundamental constant idea. And even in Westworld, I mean, I don't know if you notice this, but at times you see this white speck of light in their eyes, the machines. Now, to me, that that's a very clear suggestion that there is more at play here. There is more potentially... The, not, it's never explicit, but the suggestion is that there is something in there. There is some kind of, whether you want to call it soul or intelligence or something, that is that is shining out. You know, and, it, and it's played a lot more subtly in the Westworld TV show, this idea that, that maybe these, these aren't just machines. And it, it's done in Battlestar Galactica and various other things. This whole fascinating idea of, can a machine become more? Can a hologram become more? And through the holodeck and through these kind of stories you get the real opportunity to explore whether or not a, a fictional, almost magical world where anything is possible can either become dangerous or can become so self-aware that it starts to become more real than real, more human than human. And it's it's a constantly evolving idea, I think, throughout Star Trek. Well, it's, I'm, I'm interested to hear you talk a bit about the, the post-Voyager novels because I wasn't familiar with those stories, but... I've sort of often wondered, I mean, obviously we know that, you know, with Discovery, we're, go- we're going back again, we're having another prequel. But, you know, I- I'm one of the people who would love to see a future Star Trek series set in the time period after Voyager, after Nemesis, you, you know, sort of going forward. But one of the real questions with that, I suppose, is, you know, how does this issue of holographic rights get resolved, ultimately? Because, the you know, right towards the end of Voyager, we have the episode Author, Author, which is the kind of kind of like the, the Doctor's version of Measure of a Man, in a sense. You know, it's his kind of staking his claim uh, to his rights as an individual. And there's this kind of theme of this sort of nascent uh, movement to, to give the holograms rights and so on and to recognise them as, you, you know, as, as people rather than just things. But... You know, if you do that, then does using the holodeck basically become morally impossible in the way that, you know, arguably watching the, the modern vel- version of Westworld, that's how you, that's what your kind of response to it as a viewer is, is that there's something morally repulsive about this whole concept in a sense, because these, you know, that you do start to see them as people, they, they feel like they're people, these robots, they're not, you know, just machines. And if you start to see them as people, then really the way they're being treated is, is kind of appalling. So, in that case, you know, is it really fair to just say, well, Moriarty was a special case, the Doctor's a special case, Vic Fontaine is a sort of borderline special case, uh, but all these other holograms, we're totally confident they're not sentient, they don't understand what's going on, we have the right to kind of use them however we see fit, you know, or, or does that become increasingly problematic and also once you have the ability to impart sentience to a hologram which is is kind of the implication with Vic Fontaine is that you know there it wasn't an accident it was actually a choice the designer gave himself awareness and and gave that to him deliberately then I suppose it sort of raises the question if you're not doing that to the other holograms is that right even I mean if you're creating these characters and then deliberately limiting their kind of ability to uh, have an identity to have a person you, you know to have a to, to live in a sense you're deliberately preventing them from doing that you know what are the kind of moral questions around that so it sort of made me wonder you know in the in the years after voyager assuming that this whole issue of holographic rights continues to 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 become a thing and the doctor is campaigning and so on 
you know, will every Federation starship still have a holodeck on it? Or are they going to have to realise at some point that maybe they should start shutting those holodecks down and, you know, look for some other kind of entertainment to keep them occupied? And, and, and what impact will that have? Because obviously it's, you know, as we've seen, it's quite a big part of their leisure activities, you know, particularly on Voyager. It's, it's seen as really crucial to them and a, a place for sort of bonding and, you, you know, relaxation on this quite difficult, lonely voyage in a sense. It's their... It's their way of sort of um, getting away from the reality of it all. It's a fascinating idea because, yeah, as you say, you know, in, in not just obviously in something like Voyager where they're stranded, but in deep space missions, you know, there are, are for a long period of time, you know, a five-year mission, for, so, so, so to speak. Yeah, the holodeck is like the, it's like the equivalent of, you know, somebody in now in, in a job coming home and having no form of entertainment or having a limited form of entertainment. Your TV's taken away, your video game console's taken away. You know, it's that whole idea of... of if you're that, if you're interested in that kind of thing, what else is going to be that release? Is going to be that, you know, that relaxation? You're absolutely right. So it's from that perspective, it's an interesting idea. In terms of the continuation novels, I haven't read all of them yet, but the story I've read, the Doctor ends up becoming something of a a, a figurehead without wanting to be of a very radicalist holographic movement who are prepared to kill in order to you know, make their case in order to be given the, the rights of an individual of, of, of actual life forms instead of being, you know, locked away in computers or used for the amusement. And there's a really quite, uh, Christy Golden writes the novel, it's a really quite sadistic scene, sequence of scenes where holograms kidnap certain Starfleet officers on a, uh, on a ship uh, on, from Voyager, I think it is. They kidnap and they, uh, they put them in a holodeck and the holograms are in charge and they basically inflict some real horror on them you know they they make them their slaves and you know it goes even worse that there are suggestions that a character a human character gets raped by a hologram and then has to live has to deal with the consequences and it's a really quite dark sinister storyline in which these very sadistic holograms turn the tables in their head whereas obviously to starfleet officers or human beings there is no moral issue because they're not real. <laughs> and and that's that's the fascinating idea that the novels begin to explore. So I think that could be an, an extension, a quite dark extension of do we need to shut the hologra- holographic, you know, system down because these holograms could, if they have control, could actually start hurting real, in inverted commas, human people. It's a fascinating idea that would be great, as I, I agree with you, it'd be great to have a show set in the early 25th century or whatever that was able to explore some of these issues absolutely i have to say when i first started watching the the remake of westworld you know one of the first thoughts i had was was sort of well you know if if star trek comes back in the future this basically it feels like the kind of ultimate holodeck episode gone horrifically (laughs) like violent and awful do you know what i mean like it yeah because it is very much in that kind of uh frame but at the same time it's so much you know it's a much more modern take it's much more brutal it's much more uh shocking um and complex in various ways but it you know, it, it really is, it, it's tapping into some of the same ideas, but just pushing them in a much darker direction, really. And and in some ways, I suppose, you know, going back, it makes you look at these other presentations of a kind of comparable setup in a in a different light. It's kind of impossible not to, not to be affected by seeing things through such a kind of bleak lens uh, in some ways, you know, going back and looking at these other stories, which share some of the kind of structural connections with that in a way it's true it frames the holodeck in a much more sinister context really so i suppose the uh the, the big thing to think about really is whether or not westworld is a is a good 
uh, touchstone to go and investigate, really, uh, and and the new series in terms of of, of Star Trek. You know, and as as a Star Trek fan, as somebody who likes holodeck episodes, you know, is it worth going back and looking and worth you know looking at the new Westworld as well as the old one to uh, to see these parallels? I'd say the old Westworld. It, it yeah, it's worth seeing. It's I mean, it's a bit of a kind of cult classic, I suppose. I, I'd seen it. I think I'd seen it years and years ago, but I really didn't have much in the way of memories of it before going back to watch it this week. I have to say I was a little bit disappointed with it, having seen the the modern version, because, you know, so many of the ideas are, are, are you know, they're the same ideas that they're carrying through into the remake, but they, they've, it's so much more modern. It's so much more, there's so much more drama. It's so much darker. It's so much more complex in a way. The, the original film, it's a bit of a romp. It's a bit silly. It's got quite a sort of comedic sensibility. It's even got kind of comedy sound effects at times. And also I sort of felt, you know, watching that and also, you know, going back to Jurassic Park as well, the novel as well as the film, it it made me think that, you know, Michael Crichton very much improved on that original film when he went back and did this very similar story with Jurassic Park. Partly just because both the book and the film of Jurassic Park, it sort of feels like there's a bit more meat to it. There's a, it's sort of about something. Do you know what I mean? There are, there are ideas in there, whether it's the kind of chaos theory, whether it's, you know, this kind of critique of science is, is the age of science coming to an end. There's a lot of sort of interesting background information and theory about dinosaurs. You kind of learn quite a lot there. It, it just sort of feels like it's, it's sort of saying something. And the modern Westworld is very much saying things about human morality and kind of, uh, uh, you, you know why people behave the way they do and, and the extent to which the things that people do reflect their their character and so on and the original one it, it just feels to me a little bit like a sort of enjoyable romp but but slightly hollow it, it's you know it's kind of the robot with with nothing or maybe not nothing inside but you you know slightly hollow inside but it's 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 an interesting film it's it's worth seeing sort of out of curiosity also features Majel Barrett uh, as the um, the brothel madam so you know worth checking out for that reason but I would say it's kind of no contest really the the modern remake of Westworld is just you know really mind-blowing television and you know absolutely if, you, if you're going to watch one or the other you probably be better to go with the remake yeah I, I completely agree I mean it's quite it's quite something I mean it's it, it's a genuinely fascinating piece of, of, of television it's got some incredible level of layers and depth and things like that and it takes now now having seen now the the original movie you know and quite often you you know you you see something you might enjoy that's a remake but then you go back and watch the original and the original is so much better or it's so much more interesting in this case They've, Jonathan Nolan and HBO have really taken this idea, this concept that Michael Crichton had, and and truly done not just a modern remake, but taken all the fascinating ideas within and punched it up to a different level. So while the original is a really a really interesting piece of nineteen seventies pulp science fiction thriller, and and yeah, as I said I said at the beginning, a strong inspiration for the Terminator, definitely. It is that is all it really is, and. If you want the the moral questions that touch along the kind of things that Star Trek does, then yeah, Westworld 2016 yeah, is your bag. Definitely, definitely. definitely. It's interesting. I mean, in comparison, I suppose to when we were talking about the Manchurian Candidate, I think we both very much felt you know the original film that well, and the, and the novel I, I really enjoyed as well. But the original film there is you know a real classic, and the the remake doesn't quite 
quite hit it. Um, and the, the Star Trek version is, you, you know, I sort of felt was maybe somewhere in between. It was kind of interesting, but but uh, not up there. I mean, in this case, I think definitely the remake is the the one to watch. And a fistful of data, as I say, it's it's hard for me. For me, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. I, I literally last year I was asked to pick my um, top fifty Star Trek episodes by a, an online magazine for um, you know to celebrate the the fiftieth, and and I basically had one guilty pleasure included for each series, as well as the kind of you know big kind of classic episodes. And this was my TNG guilty pleasure because I just think it's a lot of fun. I think it's very entertaining. It's enjoyable. Brent Spiner is great. It's you know it's probably of all the episodes where he plays a dozen characters i think it's the it's the most enjoyable one he's actually quite scary as the villain he's got a you know cold cool you know exactly that kind of yul brenner thing you see in the original film um he he does it well he does the menace as well as the kind of the comedy and it's got a beautiful final shot as well you know that 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 final shot where the enterprise is flying off into the sunset really nice little touches you know uh, patrick stewart directed it directed it with i think real sort of affection for the you know for the kind of western genre and so on and and for the the kind of tone of the show it you know it holds together very well it's it feels quite confident it is a late tng episode but you know everyone feels very it feels very settled in it's all about the characters it's all about the kind of interactions the humor and so on and it uh you know it 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 just all works very well and it you know it really captures that kind of quality of TNG that was so appealing about it, this kind of family of people that you you know, you know enjoy spending time with week after week. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I really do. I think it's a lovely episode, really nicely directed, well-performed, takes a, a, a simple concept and does it, does it well, you know, and, and has a lot of homage, homages to, you know, Sergio Leone and Rio Bravo and things like that along the way. And, you know, it's, it's lovely in that sense. And it's, it's a good example of the next generation being quite relaxed, enjoying the characters it's got, enjoying its ability to take its time, and yeah, it's it's lovely. Although for for me, my my guilty pleasure holodeck is is Am Fair machine, enough, but yeah, that, yeah, but yeah. that's oh, well, for, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's the same kind yeah. of thing, you know. They're quite similar um, in a way, I think. That so, kind of genre playing yeah. with the genre, you know. I mean, that's very much sort of playing with the kind of Bond genre and so on. And um, and yeah. also, you know, one of the nice things is just seeing the. The you know the great pleasure of Alman Bashir is seeing the regular actors playing these different characters, and in a way you don't you don't quite get the same thing here you do with Brent Spiner, obviously, but uh, but also Marina Sirtis is great in this episode. You know, very much kind of uh, playing against type in a sense, playing this kind of mysterious stranger, and you know it's another one of those episodes that sort of reminds you how how much better she could have been in a way if maybe she'd been written for a bit better. It's another one of those stories which shows her kind of stronger side, um, shows a bit more you know a bit more character in a way she's not just um sitting there stating the obvious or whatever the kind of the kind of troy <laughs> cliche she's you know she really or crashing the ship or crashing the ship yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's very true it's a, it's a, it's a good episode with uh, good character work so uh, i'm sure anyone listening to this doesn't need an excuse to go and uh, watch a fistful of data's again but you were just giving you, there one, you go. so go for it <laughs> yeah. well it's been uh, really interesting talking about uh, westworld and uh Fistful of Data's and beyond with you, Duncan. Um, in the in this episode, it's been uh, it's been quite illuminating, really, to to get into this discussion. Um, and it almost feels like the tip of an iceberg, really, with the holodeck. So, uh, I think it's time you and I get back to work, though. So, mm. computer end program. Computer end program. 
computer. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, Duncan, we might be here for a while. <laughs> while we're trying to fix the... Better hope the, the safety protocols are on anyway. Well, I was going to say, while we try and fix the safety protocols, um, thankfully... Primitive culture isn't all that's been happening on uh, the network this week. So let's have a look at what else has been happening on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Melodic Treks. He wrote very heartfelt music for masculine subjects. And if you look at his career, whether it's Red October, where I don't think there's a woman with a speaking part. I mean, it's like an all-male movie. Uh, or Robocop, or Conan, or Flesh and Blood. And those were... You know, about like old-fashioned, traditional, manly men, you know, and what's what's in the heart of those warriors. Literary Treks. McCoy eventually gets command of the Enterprise, and one of the reasons for this is that he makes little comments to Kirk occasionally about how he has a cushy job. You know, he's got, oh, this nice, comfortable chair he can sit in. Because McCoy, at this point, he's got a lot of people getting sick on the Enterprise. There's colds, there's broken legs or whatever. I mean, there's just, for some reason, sickbay is busy. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. The thing that finally pushed me over the edge. This is going to sound so stupid. I've said this before. They were releasing a uh, Superman versus Aliens comic book. And I was like, oh, I guess I better get ready for Superman versus Aliens <laughs> and watch, you know, the Alien movies. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media, and you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X Files podcast. If you type that into Twitter and Facebook, 
So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.